What does it mean to be healthy? Is it being a certain weight? Is it looking a certain way? Is it being able to play sports? Is it having a certain level of mobility? Likely all of us could throw out answers of what it means to be healthy. Depending on the way that you answer the question, it will likely determine what you do to get there. If you answer the question, what does it mean to be healthy, by uh, thinking that you just need to be as light as possible, that it's all about weight, well, you and I both know that that is a, a slippery slope to all kinds of trouble, eating disorders and and all sorts of ideas that if, if the goal is wrong, if your motivation is wrong, that it's just to lose weight, it's, we can agree it's not healthy. Maybe the perspective is the opposite. Maybe you think being healthy is just being as big and muscular as you could possibly be. And so in that pursuit of being as big as possible, uh, maybe you go down the route, uh, route of steroids. We can agree that that is not healthy. But maybe you say, okay, there's a happy medium here. Maybe CrossFit, you know, that's the way to, to get fit. That's how what it means to be healthy. And you're right, you could be really healthy uh, through doing CrossFit. But maybe in an effort to be as fit as you can, you start doing movements that your body's not ready for and you blow out your knees. Is that healthy? Or maybe uh, you, like I used to love doing, uh, train for triathlon. And you, in the pursuit of becoming an Iron Man, you dedicate dozens of hours every week to training. But with that comes a cost. Maybe your family responsibilities. You might be fit as could be, but are you healthy? I say all of this to illustrate how complicated of a question it can be when you ask, what does it mean to be healthy? Because it, it matters very much that you know the answer to that question before you go running headlong into what you try to do to become healthy. But the question I want to ask this morning is different. Although the Bible does talk a lot about our bodies and a lot about being healthy, uh, the question I want to ask is, what is a healthy church? What is a healthy church? And I really want you to think about what your answer to that question would be. You can even jot it down in your bulletin if you want. What would it mean to be a healthy church? church and I think you'll see that just like if we think about our own personal health the way that we answer that question will very much determine what we do to get there right, we could model it with just one of those examples let's say like the bodybuilder example as a church we said a healthy church is a big church a growing church well we could do all sorts of things to be a big church in a growing church that aren't necessarily healthy so the question we need to ask, which is harder to answer than you might think, is what is a healthy church? And these questions are important. And they're the questions that we're going to be asking over the next number of weeks as we work through the book of Titus. This morning we're going to be looking at the introduction to the letter where Paul, as he writes to Titus, he gives healthy church priorities. He starts to lay a foundation for what a healthy church ought to be. And we'll see that this, these healthy church priorities expand throughout the letter. But he starts to give like a sample. Uh, I was uh, upset to hear when the pandemic hit that Costco stopped giving out samples. Right? Because samples are a good thing. Every 
grocery stores that have samples. You can taste it and say, am I going to like this or not? And you can know you're going to like it because it was cooked in a microwave or a toaster oven. And so you know if you cook it, it's only going to be even a little bit better. And so samples are a good thing because they give you a taste of what you're going to be bringing home. The introduction to Titus is not cooked in a microwave, but it is a bit of a sample. We can read this section and we can know what's coming, what's coming through the rest of this letter. How is what is proposed here? What principles, what foundations, uh, how are they going to be expanded throughout the letter? And that's exactly what this introduction is for us. It helps us zoom out or in, depending how you look on it, of these healthy church priorities of what is, what, what's the right motivation, what's the right message, and what are the right methods for a healthy church. And so if you are a member of this church, this is a question that we always need to be asking. We always need to be asking, how could we be a healthy church? Today we celebrate our second anniversary or our second birthday as a church, and this is a good checkup for us. Like going to the doctor, we need to check up and say, you know, am, am what I'm doing, is this healthy? Are, are what we're doing as a church, is this a healthy step in the right direction? And so it's, it's a good checkup for us as a church. I pray that God's word through Titus, uh, through this book, would be encouraging to you. If you're a Christian and you have not joined yourself to this or another gospel preaching church, this is a really good series for you as well. Because I hope that as we work through this book that scholars have said, this is the blueprint for what a healthy church is. This lays a foundation for what a healthy church is. I hope you see and consider what the church is and why it matters very, very much. Because is the church optional? Not according to the Bible. God's word describes that the church is something purchased by Jesus' own blood. And it's central to God's mission. So I pray that you're encouraged by that as we go through this series. And if you're here as, and you're not a Christian, you are not eavesdropping just because we are talking about the church. I'm so glad that you're here. And I'm sure you have answers in your own mind of what the motivations, what the message, and what the methods of the Christian church are. But I hope you come away out of this time this morning, and, and if you stick around for this series, to have a clear view of not just what you think those things are, uh, or what the church should be, not even what we think the church should be, but what God thinks the church should be. And so if you haven't already, would you turn in your Bibles to the book of Titus? It is a small one. It's only three short chapters. My Bible is only uh, one, uh, like two pages. Uh, and it's near the very end of your Bible, okay? Book of Titus. If you don't have a Bible, we would love to uh, lend you a Bible for the morning. You can get one on the table over there. And if you don't own a Bible, uh, you can just take that Bible home with you. It's yours to keep. The book of Titus is what we'll be going through this morning. Now, would you stand with me as I read God's holy and true word, as I read Titus 1, 1 to 4, for us this morning. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, 
promise before the ages began. And at the proper time manifested his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Amen. You can take a seat. The genre of Titus is a pastoral epistle, pastoral epistle, which is a fancy way of saying it's a letter to a pastor, it's a letter to a pastor. The majority of the books in the New Testament, not by length, but in number, are letters, they are epistles, and three of those epistles are pastoral epistles. There was two that were written to a guy named Timothy, and there's uh, this one which is written to Titus, and that's the one that we are looking at. So pastoral epistles, letter to a pastor. This is Paul. He, he introduces himself, and he says who he's writing to, to Titus, who is his friend, this fellow worker. And uh, a lot of times that's all we see in the introduction. And you might even look at this text and say, what are we just looking at this introduction about? Wasn't it just like, you know, to Titus from Paul, hope you're doing okay. Uh, there's a lot going on in this introduction here, uh, in this letter. But it may be helpful to just look at a little bit of context to understand what was the situation that Paul was writing from and what was the situation that, that Titus was receiving this letter as we dive in. Now, Paul had been with Titus. We get that from a little bit later. Uh, in verse 5, you'll see, this is why I left you in Crete. He was with Titus, and they were in Crete, and they'd been sharing the gospel and planting uh, churches there. And Crete is a mountainous island in the Mediterranean. It had quite the reputation at the time of this letter. Uh, both through what we see in the Bible itself as well as other historical documents from the time, we can learn a lot about Crete. And we see that Crete was out of control. It was a place of corruption and a place of moral collapse. It was culturally acceptable to lie. It was a place that was marked by gluttony and laziness. It had a harsh selfish and racist culture and so this was tough slogging in crete don't imagine just a bunch of people sitting around on this beautiful mediterranean island asking titus to you know share the gospel with them that's not the scene that we see and so paul what he does as the seasoned church planting missionary pastor veteran what he does is he writes his buddy titus a letter because he's no longer with him and he writes him this letter to encourage him about what it means to be a healthy church what are the first things that he needs to to put together uh, to put things in order uh, it says again that in verse 5 that you might put what remained in order and in this introduction it doesn't only say like i said who it's from and who it's to this is actually one of paul's longest introductions to any of his letters i think the only ones that are longer are romans and galatians and so this is quite a long introduction of all of the letters that we see in the New Testament. But it's actually one of his shortest uh, letters total. And so it's significant that the introduction is very long here, even though it's such a short letter. But in this introduction, we see these themes and theology that gets packed together that we're going to see reoccur over and over and over. So I hope you kind of put a pin in some of these uh, healthy church priorities that we see this morning and you watch them come back up and up and up to the surface. 
Even our big idea, which uh, is a little bit wordy, I'll admit, but stick with it. Our big idea from uh, Titus 1, 1 to 4 is faith and knowledge of the truth lead to godliness and hope. Faith and knowledge of the truth lead to godliness and hope. Now, we've already read through these four verses, and you likely understand that that big idea pretty much comes from verses 1 and 2. Faith and knowledge of the truth lead to godliness and hope. But I hope you see that that is not only the big idea for this uh, sermon, this passage, but I would argue that that is the big idea for this entire letter. That as we come to each passage and we look at the qualifications for elders, the confrontation of false teachers, the the exhortation to teach sound doctrine, for discipling, for uh, being ready for every good work, for being grounded in the gospel, for all that's coming throughout this letter, we're going to see that faith and knowledge of the truth lead to godliness and hope. So it is a little bit wordy for this morning, but we're going to be hammering this nail for a lot of weeks, okay? So faith and knowledge of the truth lead to godliness and hope. And so I would encourage you to even consider committing to memory. Don't worry about the big idea. Commit to memory verses 1 and 2 of Titus chapter 1. Because it's in there that we see that, that exact section of why he writes, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. Consider uh, memorizing that tiny portion of scripture as we work through this letter. But we start this morning with these healthy church priorities. And these priorities that I believe Paul is showing through Titus here is having the right motivation the right message, and the right method. Three M's, maybe with a bonus M coming at the end. We'll have to wait for that one. But the right motivation, the right message, and the right method. So let's start with the right motivation. Well, let's refresh our memory first. Who's Paul, right? First word, one word in, Paul. We've gone over this a few times as we've gone through the book of Ephesians, which Paul also wrote. That was his letter to the church in Ephesus. And also we see the story of Paul multiple times uh, repeated throughout the book of Acts, which we've also worked through. But to refresh our memory, we can remember that Paul uh, also went by the name of Saul. And in Acts chapter 7, we see him standing there and approving of the execution of Stephen, the first Christian martyr. Stephen was proclaiming the gospel, and they horrifically killed him. And Paul not only was like a, a casual bystander of like, man, that was crazy. He was approving of it. And so Paul was not always the Paul that we might think of. He was militantly opposed to Christianity. He had education. He had power. He had the ethnic status of being a Jew and a Pharisee. He had the best teachers. He was trained up. He was devoted to sh- uh, shutting this Jesus stuff down. Christianity was just starting to blossom and bloom. And Paul said, we got to put an end to this. That was his mission. And so with the blessing of the high priest, he had set on his way to go to a place called Damascus, where he was going to go and he was going to arrest Christians and drag them back to Jerusalem. That was Paul's mission. In Acts chapter 8, Luke writes that Saul was ravaging the church. In Acts chapter 9, though, it tells the story of his dramatic conversion, where he's on his way to Damascus, and Luke again writes, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples. He's a bad dude. He's a terrorist against the gospel. And he's on his way to Damascus. 
And Jesus appears to Saul in a blinding light, literally blinding him. And he confronts Saul, says, why are you persecuting me? And so Saul is blind. He has to be led by the hand to Damascus. And we see the amazing rest of the story where Saul, or as we refer to Paul, commits his life now to sharing the gospel. What a turnaround. He goes from an enemy, a hater of the gospel, to a man whose entire life is devoted to proclaiming the gospel. And so Paul's conversion is dramatic. And if you want to be encouraged by just reading that story, why don't you do that again this afternoon? Read Acts chapter 9. And just think about what a modern-day equivalent of that would be. Of that, someone that is that opposed, militantly opposed, even willing to kill someone for their faith, and saved by grace alone. We see the way Paul introduces himself here. He says, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. The word there for servant is a word that we've encountered multiple times uh, through different books of the Bible. Uh, your Bibles may even have a footnote, and you can do some research on that this week. But it literally means a slave of God. Paul, a servant of God, a slave of God. And often we see Paul refer to himself as a slave or servant of Christ. Here is an interesting tiny twist to it, because he says that he is a slave or a servant of God. And so what he's doing in this part, which you can probably see right away, is he's declaring a level of humility. He's not coming in saying, I am the man. He's saying, I am a servant of God. But what he's also doing by this tiny change of not being a, a servant of Christ specifically here, he's saying he's a servant of God, is hitching himself to other people who have been referred to as servants of God. That's a more, much more common phrase or expression or title that we see throughout the Old Testament. Think of people like Moses. We think of people like David. They were referred to as servants of God. And so that's what Paul uh, connects himself to. He is a servant of God. And then he refers to himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ, literally meaning a sent one of Jesus. He comes with the authority of Christ because he had seen Christ and Christ had commissioned him specifically to be an apostle, a sent one of Jesus. That there's a level of authority that comes behind that, right? If, if uh, you know, our kids uh, were, uh, let's say Charlie was uh, up in her room and I said, Gavin, go get Charlie for dinner. If he went up and said, Charlie, it's dinner time, maybe she listens, maybe she doesn't. But if she doesn't come down, maybe she, he, he, you know, Gavin's like, I don't know, I, I told her. And I, maybe I say, okay, go ask her again, but say, Dad says it's supper time. So now Gavin's going with the authority of dad to tell Charlie it's time for dinner. Right? It's sort of like that on a much different scale. Uh, that's sort of what Paul's doing here. He's, he's hitching himself to the authority of Christ himself by saying, I am an apostle of Jesus Christ. That is not a title that we can claim on our own. We can be sent ones. Uh, we are meant to go and make disciples. But we are not apostles. This was a, a title. This was an office uh, for a select few in the early days of the church. In Ephesians, we see that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. But Paul's message here comes with authority. But again, not to build a platform. He doesn't say these things to say, again, I am the man. This isn't the Paul show. His, he comes with humble servants, servant leadership. And we see very clearly that his motivation for writing this letter is 
Uh, we see this halfway through verse 1. For the sake of the faith of God's elect. For the sake of the faith of God's elect. elect. That answers the question, why? Why is he writing this letter? Well, he's doing it for the sake of the faith of God's elect. That is his motivation. That's why he writes this letter. Right? He is writing for the sake of God's elect. All those who trust in Jesus and all those who will trust in Jesus. Those who Paul writes again in passages like Romans 8 or Ephesians 1 that God chose before the foundations of the world. He is writing for the sake of Christians. And so Paul's motivation, the healthy church priority that we need to see right away is that he's writing for the sake of the church. He is devoted to the church. And we can see this not only from this phrase, not even only from this letter, not even of his other letters, but his entire life. He is sold out, devoted to the church. He is absolutely committed that from that radical moment of uh, the turnaround in his life, his conversion, he is completely devoted to seeing people hear the gospel and grow in the gospel. He is writing for the sake of the church. That is his motivation. Now, Paul has received a very specific commission as an apostle of Jesus Christ, and, and we are not Paul. But if you are a Christian, you have received the Great Commission, the call to go and make disciples of all nations. We have received the call and many, many commands in Scripture of how we are to interact with one another. We see dozens and dozens of the one another commands. Love one another, encourage one another, strengthen one another, admonish one another. There's all these one another commands that we need to go, we need to guard, we need to love each other. And all these things communicate this exact same consistent message. That the right motivation here is to do it for the sake of God's elect. For the sake of those who will trust in Christ and for the sake of those who do trust in Christ. And so this is a question that we need to be asking ourselves. Is our motivation as Christians and is our motivation as a church the same as what we see here from Paul? Look at yourself first. Does the way that you organize your life illustrate this? Do you invest in the things that matter most? Because that's what Paul does. His motivation as a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ is to glorify him by being obedient to the call to make disciples and see those disciples mature. That needs to be our motivation, church. That is the right motivation. Again, we are not Paul. We are not apostles. But if you are a Christian, your motivation needs to look a lot like Paul's here the sake of the faith of God's elect. And we see that, that all that comes later when he's talking about uh, having elders in the church and, and confronting false teachers and, and teaching older women and younger women how to act and older men and younger men how to act, all of this is for the sake of God's people, for the sake of the church. Right? His, his motivation for writing is not only to encourage uh, Titus, but it's to build up the body. Because the church is so much more than an institution. Look at the way he even writes to Titus. He says in verse 4, To Titus, my true child in a common faith. My true child. Paul was not Titus's dad. But he's his spiritual father. Because if we are, as the Bible says, adopted by God the Father, when we become Christians, we are part of the same family. We are brothers and sisters. And so that's how Paul writes to Titus, my true child in a common faith. 
And it's, it's one of those things that this common faith is what, what hitches them together in the gospel. This is so much more than affinity. Hear me very clearly here. It's the gospel that unites these people. Affinity is very different than family. Uh, this week, I, uh, the Kellers, uh, they invited me over for breakfast later, and uh, I, I, they were saying, well, what do you want to eat? And I said, I, you know, I'm good for most things. I just don't like this thing, this thing, and this thing. And Chris was like, great, I don't like that thing, that thing, and that thing. And right away, I was like, man, we're on the same team. That's affinity, right? But what I'm not talking about here is not affinity, because far more than, you know, our food preferences, Chris is my brother, because we're saved by grace, and that's true for all of us who are Christians. So much more than affinity or demographic or age or anything. We are siblings in Christ. And we see that that is, that is the motivator behind this. That is the grounding for this right motivation. Because we are a family. Paul knows from his own life how undeserving he is to be saved by grace. But he commits his life for the sake of the faith of God's elect. He has the right motivation, and so should we. We exist for the glory of God and for the sake of God's people. But then we need to ask the question, how are we built up? If we have the right motivation, how are we built up? And this is where it's really important, like that bodybuilding example. If we as a church say that our health is dictated by our size, we might proclaim all kinds of messages that would bring people in the door. You see, that's not what Paul does. He has the right motivation, and he also has the right message. The right message. Let's read verses 1 and 2 again. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. And we can get lost in this long sentence, because it is a long sentence. These three verses is just one big run-on sentence for Paul uh, in the original. And he goes on this long sentence, but we've already looked at, at Paul's motivation for writing the letter. But now he writes about what that's going to look like, about what the right message is. He wants their faith to grow. He wants them to be built up, but by what? By what? So let's work through the text. Let's see what it says. Is there knowledge of the truth? Now the word here for knowledge is not simply just knowing something. It's not simply intellectual assent. That if we just get it, if we just get the facts in order, we're good. This word here for knowledge is experiential knowledge. You know that there's a difference between knowing something and knowing something. I don't have another word for it. But that's, that's all I can do is emphasize. There's a difference there, right? When you, when you know something or you know, you, you get it. And that's what it's talking about here. This is experiential knowledge of the truth. And we can see from the way that this is used in Titus, the way that we see this used throughout other uh, letters in the Bible, specifically even the pastoral epistles, that this knowledge of the truth is experiential knowledge of the gospel. This is saving faith knowledge. It is knowing and responding to the gospel. That's what we mean when we see this phrase, the knowledge of the truth. This is the good news that God sent his son into the world to save sinners, to live a sinless life, yet die horrifically for the sins of those who would trust in him for salvation. Knowledge of the truth is knowing that your sin separates you from God. But because of what Jesus did, you can know peace with God. 
by repenting and believing in Jesus and trusting in his righteousness for salvation. The gospel is not, hear me right here, the gospel is not a, a ticket that you punch, right? That, okay, I have knowledge of the truth, truth I'm, I'm, I'm good to go, and now I can just go on living however I want. That is a false understanding of what knowledge of the truth is. But it's often how we, we think about it. I've told this story before where a, a coworker of mine that I had worked with, he, he had talked about, oh, Christianity is the best because, you know, you do something wrong, you just got to go say I'm sorry. And, you know, it's the best because uh, you just get, you're free and clear. You've punched your ticket. Man, that's not, that's not the gospel. That's not good news. Because look at what Paul says immediately after he talks about this saving knowledge of the gospel. For the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. This faith and knowledge of the truth is confirmed by a changed life. If someone professed to become a Christian and nothing changes about their life, if they say, I've punched my ticket, are they really saved? The Bible says that when you are saved, you die to your old self. You are made alive in Christ. You receive God's Holy Spirit. We sang that. Think what spirit dwells within you. To continue living the way that you were before is simply not what we see in Scripture. The math just doesn't add up. And this is why Paul didn't go around simply, you know, just sharing newsletters of the amount of decisions for Christ that he had in his ministry. He pursued people. He wrote letters. He stayed in places for long periods of time. He instructed uh, churches to establish elders to continue shepherding these Christians. He instructed Christians uh, very clearly how they ought to continue living in fellowship with one another, with an identifiable local church group of people that they were a part of. There's an ongoing level. It's not that VIP wristband that you get strapped on and all of a sudden you're like, okay, I have an all-access pass. To be a Christian is to take up your cross and follow Jesus. It accords with a changed heart. It accords with godliness. And I appreciate the word choice here, that it accords with. Because it communicates well that there's a two-way street that's happening here. There's a two-way street between godliness and salvation. As we've considered before, you're not saved by good works, but you are saved for good works. The godliness comes out of this knowledge of the truth. But we can also track it the other direction. The godliness verifies or validates that there's truly a changed heart from an understanding, a real experiential knowledge of the truth. And so you might be here this morning and you might have a knowledge of the truth. And I say knowledge in that way that it's just head knowledge. You know the gospel. You could, you could articulate that to me. But what we're talking about here is knowledge of the truth that accords with godliness. It accords with a changed heart. It accords with a changed life. And that change cannot come from being motivated to just be a good person. Maybe for like 12 seconds, right? But this knowledge of the truth that accords with godliness is the Spirit's work in you. And the only way that you can do that is asking for God to do that in your heart, in your life. That's our only hope. And so you could be born into a Christian family. You could go to church your whole life and have superficial knowledge of the truth. This is knowledge of the truth that accords with godliness. And the only way we can do that is asking for the Lord to do it in us. And we're going to see this consistently through Titus. 
how this, this keeps coming up, this exhortation for good works. But it's not good works that save. Never once do we see this works righteousness idea come out of this letter. We see consistently this thread of how knowledge of the truth accords with godliness. And there's one of the sermon application questions you'll see in your bulletin this week that's meant to have you think about this as you look at the big idea and look through the whole uh, book of Titus. I would encourage you to do that this week, to just look at this and, and consider that connection between salvation and godliness. But we see that Paul doesn't end there. Look in verse 2, it says, In hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. If you are a Christian, you are saved at one point. That is the past. Knowledge of the truth that accords with godliness, that is the present. But this hope of eternal life, that's future hope. Future hope. It stretches into eternity future. And this is the hope of the gospel, that when Jesus died for your sins, he paid that penalty in full. He rose from the dead. And in his rising, we gain an eternal hope that because Jesus died and rose from the dead, so do we die to our old selves and are raised again in Christ. It's exactly what's demonstrated in baptism. And you may have heard this a hundred times before, but don't get tired of this good news that we have an eternal hope. Eternal hope. We rise with hope of eternal life, that one day we will be with God forever. Again, there's a lot of lyrics in that last song we sang, so it's easy to reference many of them. But we sang in the very last, heaven's eternal days before thee, God's own hand shall guide us there. It's not long to, to dream of the day when we will be with Christ forevermore, when sin will be no more, when there will be no more tears, no more suffering, no more pain. Paul doesn't even just leave it at, in hope of eternal life. He gives another line which can make us scratch our heads at times, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. Paul makes it very clear that God is a promise-keeping God. He never lies. Again, later in chapter 1, we see Paul quote this well-known Cretan who says, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Now, we're going to spend time looking at that verse. It's an interesting verse that is just, what? where did that come from? Paul's just dissing the Cretans. Uh, but, but he says they're always liars. And from both what Paul says here as well as other historical accounts, it was just completely acceptable to lie. That was just part of the culture. And it's honestly not that different than we have even today. But it was just lying was normal. So you could say whatever you want, exaggeration, all these things. But what Paul really wants to do is he's writing this letter to Titus and to uh, the, the Cretan church. Because we see it's not only to Titus at the end. It says, grace be with you all. Uh, so this, this letter is to more people than just Titus. And we see what he wants to do is saying, you might be a liar, but God never lies. And that's really important when we consider the promises of God. That God, who never lies, promised before the ages began that he would call a people to himself. It is impossible for us to wrap our minds around the concept before the ages began. God would promise to save his people. 
Again, as Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 1, God chose us in Christ before the foundations of the world. He predestined us for adoption as his children. God set in his mind that he would save you, knowing that you would sin. The Bible says he saved us even while we were still sinners. This is news that feels too good to be true. And so the right message is not a new, slick, contextualized message. The right message was, is, and always will be the gospel. That's the answer to the question. If you make a note, what's the right message? It's the gospel. And we could try to win people with inspirational quotes, promises of health, wealth, and prosperity. But that's not the right message. That does nothing, nothing to address the biggest problem that you have, which is the sin in your heart that separates you from God. The only hope we have is the gospel, and therefore the right message is the gospel. And if you're here this morning and you don't know this hope of eternal life, please come talk to me. Talk to a member near you of this church. Talk to whoever invited you out. Because you will hear many promises in your life. But God has made promises, and he does not lie. He does not lie. Our entertainments and addictions all hold out the promise of deliverance. Everything and everyone promises to be your savior, but they will not die for you. They will not die for you. So turn from your sin and trust in Christ today. Paul models for us this right motivation for the sake of the faith of God's elect. He models for us the right message, the knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness and hope of eternal life. And our third healthy church priority is the how. How do we share this message of hope for the sake of others? We need the right method. The right method. This can feel very pragmatic to talk about, but look what he says in verse 3. And at the proper time manifested his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God, our Savior. How do we share this message of hope? What is the right method for the church? Paul makes it pretty clear. Through preaching. And preaching is what I'm doing now. Expositional preaching is opening up God's word, exposing what is there, and proclaiming its truths. It's letting God's word speak. But we see here this idea of preaching is so much broader than what happens behind a pulpit. That's not the point that Paul is making, nor the point that I'm making. To preach something is to herald something. Back in the day, before uh, email or phone calls, or before you could shoot someone a text message or, or whatever, heralds would be employed to share news. And so if the king had news that he wanted to share, he, you know, he would send off the herald, and the herald would take off and go to the village or the town and then proclaim the message. He was the messenger. And as the messenger, he came with the king's authority, just like Paul is coming as an apostle, a sent one of Jesus Christ, the herald would come and proclaim the message that the king had said to say. That was the mission of a herald. And this is what it means to preach. It's to herald, to, to proclaim the gospel. And it's God's ordained method for disseminating this information through heralding, through gospel proclamation. It feels too simple. 
but it is the right God-ordained method. And I know what you might be thinking. That's not the answer that you want to hear because it's hard to proclaim the gospel. You might be ridiculed. You might feel embarrassed. You might get asked questions that you don't know the answers to. You can think of yourself. How much more willing would you be to sign up for a volunteer event where you could paint faces and uh, give out cotton candy uh, compared to just talking to your neighbor and sharing the gospel with them? Now, painting faces and cotton candy are fun. They are good things. So don't hear me wrong. But our mission needs to be through this method that God has given to us, which is preaching, which is heralding, which is proclaiming the gospel. We know the life-saving news of the gospel, and we settle for hoping that being kind to someone will save them. Kindness is good. Mercy is needed. But the Bible is clear. Those are non-negotiable. But Jesus is the only way to know peace with God. We cannot give people a shoelace when they need a lifeline. And so our commission as followers of Christ is to share the gospel. We are heralds of the good news. But be encouraged. You save no one. You cannot save someone's soul. We are simply the messengers. We are simply the heralds. But they need to hear. How can someone believe if they have not heard? But you can rest in the fact that God does the heavy lifting. It is God's spirit that revives dead hearts. And so you may never be a Paul. He likely preached the gospel better than you. But I promise you that he didn't preach a better gospel. It is good news that we get to herald. This news is not original to Paul. He is not commissioning Titus to innovate. He is telling him to propagate. He's saying, go, share this message. It's through preaching that people hear about this, that, that this knowledge of the truth that accords with godliness and leads to hope of eternal life. So HGC, let's not go around trying to come up with the new best method. Let's stick with the method that God has given to us. Let's be obedient to share this hope that we have. And so all of this is a call for us today, friends. These are and must be our healthy church priorities. Because depending on what we think health is, will change what we do as a church. And we can do all sorts of unhealthy things in a pursuit of trying to be healthy if we haven't thought deeply about what it means to be healthy. But we need to have the right motivation. We do this for the sake of those that God has called to himself. We need the right message. We need the gospel to ground us. The gospel is the, the good news of salvation. It is the power of God. And we need the right method. We need to herald. We need to proclaim this message of hope for the sake of the lost. If we abandon any of those, we run into serious trouble. This is where you get your bonus M. If we have the right motivation, if we have the right uh, message, and if we have the right method, that is our mission as a church. That is our mission. And this is the work that God has been doing from eternity past 
And we, even as a a two-year-old church, we are but a blip on the work that God has been doing from eternity past into eternity future. But we are a blip that matters. And that's not an attempt to overemphasize what we're doing, uh, to over, uh, you know, weight our own importance. But we are a blip that matters because we matter very much to God. Jesus died so that we might live. And we exist to glorify God. These things matter very much. So Titus 1, 1 to 4 is a wonderful little morsel. It is that Costco sample. It tells us what is going to come through the rest of this letter. That, that God cares that we would know what a healthy church is. Even the letter of Titus itself is, is but a sample of God's redemptive work throughout history. And even words themselves cannot contain the exhaustive work, the amazing work that God has been doing from eternity past into eternity future. And so for us today, church, let's be a church that has the right motivation, the right message, and the right methods to be on mission for God's glory alone. Let's pray. God, you are beyond our comprehension that you have made promises even before the ages began that you would call a people to yourself God help us to have the right motivation to do this all for your glory and for the sake of your people help us to have the right message that we would be driven by grounded in the gospel And that we would be obedient through your ordained method. That we would go and preach to the nations. That we would herald this good news. That we would proclaim the gospel out of our love for you, our desire to be obedient, and our love for the lost. Help us. In Jesus' name, amen.